Good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning. I am Janice, and I'm just um, pleased to be continuing in the series that we're doing on Psalm 23, easily probably the most famous psalm that you know about in the Bible. The Psalms is the largest book in the Bible, but this is easily the most famous psalm. Even people who don't really follow Jesus are familiar with these words, right? And so we've taken this opportunity to take uh, several Sundays and to dig in deep, and we're going to continue that today and then finish up next week. So as Pastor Joe has been doing over the past few weeks, we have been reading this together. And if you're not careful, folks, you're going to have it memorized before you're done, all right? So um, now we struggle with the, with the version, right? Depending on your age, I learned it in King James. This is the new King James version, although I usually teach out of the NIV, but the NIV is just not as pretty, folks. So we're going to stick with this, so let's read it together. Are you ready? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, as I uh, look at this verse and as I began to study about what we are, we're doing these verses, um, it occurs to me that scholars have no idea how old David was when he wrote this. We really don't know. We have a lot of information on King David. He is one of the characters in the Bible that we have probably as many stories and as much information about as, as anybody that is there besides Jesus. And, um, but based on what he includes in this particular passage, this very short six verses, most people agree that he was probably later on in life. This is not something he wrote when he was 16. I'm not sure how many valleys of the shadow of death he had experienced at 16, right? I mean, this is, this is a, a man who is perhaps aged in years who is reflecting on who God is to him and who God has been to him. And this is just a side note. I think, you know, take this as a homework for the rest of this week. But if you were to sit down and to write six verses on who God is to you, and what he has done in your life, what would you include? What would you put in that six verses? You know, I mean, David doesn't skip anything, right? He, he, he mentions the good times. He mentions the bad times. He mentions peaceful times. He mentions grief. He mentions the spankings. He mentions the come to Jesus meetings, although Jesus isn't here yet. But, but you know, go with me. He, he mentions those kinds of interactions with God. What would you include? if you were giving a testament of who God is to you um, for the life that you have experienced thus far. Depending on your age, it might look a little different. Well, today we're going to get into chapter or the, the fifth verse of this particular chapter 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. Now, I don't know about you, but I love to sit at a table depending on who else is sitting there with me. 
I don't know about you, but I don't know that I always want to sit with my enemies at a table. I'm not sure I want my enemies in the room when I am sitting down to have a meal. I think it might affect my digestive abilities if I'm dealing with enemies in the room. You know, the men are coming back from a retreat right now. They're down in uh, Gatlinburg or probably on the road by now. They had to check out, I think, by... 10. So they're probably uh, getting in their vehicles right now and heading up. A few weeks ago, or maybe it's, I don't know, a month or so ago, the women also went away, and we had our retreat down there. But I need you to know what was going on the week we were gone. The week we were gone was my husband's 40th high school reunion. And he traveled up, and it's very convenient because my mother lives up in Dayton where, we're, um, where we went to school, and so that's um, where the reunion was. He's also the same age as my brother. And so while I was away at retreat, my husband went back to his 40th high school reunion. At that reunion was going to be his former girlfriend, Also a girl that he had a mad crush on when he was in high school. She had no idea. But he had a mad crush on her when he was in high school. I did not get to go to that reunion with him. Now, um, hear me out. I totally trust my husband. I don't have any problem with that. I do not trust those women. (laughs) I know my husband looks way better today than he did when he was in high school, and I know they're going to see what they missed out on. And I would like to have sat at that table. I don't consider them enemies, but you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you need to keep your enemies in eyesight. You know what I mean? You need to keep your eye on people that, are, that you are struggling with in one way or another. I don't have any struggles with that, but you understand what I'm saying. There are places, and maybe for you, that, that enemy table is Thanksgiving and it's coming up. You know, I don't, I don't know what that is. But, but if we're going to tear this passage apart and understand anything about what David meant when he wrote it to his original audience, let's go in a little deeper and look at who David, David really is. Now, first and foremost, David was a shepherd, right? And so it's, it's intriguing to me that of all the roles that David holds in his lifetime, he was, he, seriously, he has been a king. If he's writing this at the end of his life, he has been a king much longer than he was ever a shepherd, But yet he uses the shepherd as the lens through which he writes this whole passage. And here's what a shepherd does when he's preparing a table for his sheep. All right? Um, In the summertime, when shepherds are taking their sheep out for their grazing lands, those high plateaus in, in good sheep country are way up on the top. All right? And those plateaus are called mesas. And a mesa is the Spanish word for table. Thus, the tablelands. So a shepherd is going up and preparing the tablelands for his sheep. He is going up, he's scouting them out, he's finding out where the best grazing is going to be, he's looking at the area, he's deciding when and where he's going to visit particular areas of those tablelands. He's also looking at the vegetation. Some of those pretty pictures and those lovely little blooming flowers that look so great are actually, some of those are poisonous to the sheep. And so a good shepherd goes up and scouts that stuff out and does what he can to eradicate anything like that that's going to be uh, harmful to his sheep by the time he gets them up there. He's also going to check out the water supply. He's going to go and dig out anything that's obstructing the ability for his sheep to get down to water. And he's preparing the tableland for his sheep. 
Now, I will also tell you this, that when you take sheep out onto open ranges like that, there are no fences. There are no fences up there. So that is when sheep are particularly vulnerable to predators. There's nothing to keep a predator out except the shepherd. So I don't have, I don't have time to develop this point, but, but, I, but it stuck out to me, and so I just had to include it. When we are in those tablelands, when we are sitting there, we may be in the midst of the enemy. And our only and perhaps our best defense is the shepherd. We need to stay close. Our best defense in a time of vulnerability where there is nothing to guard us is our proximity to the shepherd. Staying close to him is what is going to keep us safe in those times. All right, so that's just a little bit about his shepherding uh, lifestyle, right? But, the king, but uh, David was known as many other things. He was the second king of Israel. Right? If you don't know any of the Israelite history or you weren't raised in church and you didn't hear all these Bible stories, no worries. Let me catch you up a little bit. Israel had been a, a nation without a king. It had been a theocracy um, where God was the ruler and they were basically organized and uh, judged, if you will, or governed by the priests. And at such a point, they wanted a king. God gave him a king. His name was Saul. And Saul was a king that followed God for like three and a half minutes and then he didn't. And then God dismissed him and told him, I'm taking my spirit away from you and I am raising up another king, and that is David. So Saul knows that he is going to be displaced, and he also knows that it is not going to be his son. We're not going to have Prince Jonathan rise up and become the king. It's going to be a, it's going to be a person from a different line, from a different family, a different tribe. So David is that king. David is chosen as a young boy. He's anointed. As a shepherd boy, he's brought in from the field while the, while the, the um, prophet Samuel is there looking at his other seven brothers and passing them by and then says, isn't there one more? And he pulls David in. David is the youngest of the family. That's important. And brings him in and anoints him king in front of his brothers. Also an important factor in terms of how they viewed him. He is known to be good looking. The Bible doesn't talk about everybody's appearance, but the ones they talk to, the, that the Bible talks about, you can, you can bet that there's something significant about it. He was known to be a very good-looking man. He was skillful with a stone and a sling. He was brave. He was sensitive. He is emotional. He cries more than any other king in the Bible. It's crazy. There's so many crying verses. He is a musician. He's passionate right? He's a poet. He dances. He commits adultery he, with one of the wives of one of his commanders. He is a terrible father, and yet he's a man after God's own heart. All of those things, and yet he, doesn't that give you hope this morning? I don't know who you are, but that gives me hope that we can be people after God's own heart. But here's the thing. He had enemies. He had many enemies, Right? Let's just name a few. Goliath, the famous enemy that he kills with the sling and the stone. That his own brothers will become his enemies because they're not exactly happy about the chosen one, this little brother. Saul, the, the king who's about to be displaced. The Philistines, which are the national enemy of the day of the Israelites. His own sons will become his enemy and attempt to kill him. And a few other crazy characters like Shimei, who like stands on a hill and throws rocks and yells insults at King David when he's having to be run out of town at one point. He has enemies all through his life. 
But here's what I notice about what David sees. All enemies are not the same. All enemies are not the same. Enemies can be an opportunity or a threat. They can be an opportunity or a threat. And I will tell you this, David instinctively knows which is which. And we could stand to learn this. We could stand to learn this. He understands who is a threat. Goliath and the Philistines are a threat. They are a threat to the nation of Israel. They are an intimidation to the nation of Israel understanding who their God is. And, and David takes that very, very seriously. He, they, he sees the, the, the Philistines being willing to intimidate the Israelites into submission, and they need to be faced with courage, with bravery, and the strength that comes from God. And he is not slow to do that. He is not a coward. He will take out a sling and a stone, and he will do what needs to be done. That's one kind of enemy. There are other enemies in his life. Saul, his brothers, his sons, Shimei, are opportunities. These are people that God has allowed into David's life to build his character for a season. I'm going to say that again. There are enemies that God allows into David's life to build his character for a season. These are not enemies that God has invited him to get out a sling and a stone and to eliminate on the spot. That is not what he is supposed to be doing with this. You may think that you have an enemy that needs to be removed from your life. But is it possible that God has put them there as an opportunity for you to build your character? for you to gain some maturity, an opportunity for you to learn to trust God a little more than you do right now. Maybe he's waiting for us to learn something. Maybe we have an enemy. Maybe we have a conflict. Let's call it that. Some of us aren't good at saying someone's an enemy. Maybe we have a conflict in our life that is not going away, and God is allowing it there as an opportunity because he's waiting for us to grow up a little bit. He's waiting for us to gain a little more experience. He's waiting for us to practice a little more self-control. He's waiting for us to learn what it means to rest in peace. Not literally, but you know what I mean. Rest peacefully. We need to be able to do that, right? We need to gain some peace in our soul before we get it in our situation. You need peace in your soul before you're going to gain it in your situation. I'm telling you, if you can't find peace with your enemy staring you down, you're not going to find peace when your enemy disappears. We're going to have to find that peace in the presence of our enemies. We're going to have to find it at that table. Our contentment is not really dependent on a lack of conflict in our life. Our contentment, our peace, and our joy are a product of leaning on God in the midst of our conflict, in the presence of our enemies. So threat, opportunity, which of those are we dealing with? Number two, having the chance to eliminate our enemy does not mean we should take it. 
You may have an opportunity to eliminate your enemy, but that does not mean that you should take it. You know what? You might have been bullied as a four-year-old, as a five-year-old, as a 10-year-old, and now you're old enough perhaps to take those people out. And that doesn't mean that you have the opportunity, or you may have the opportunity. That does not mean you have license to go and, and vindicate yourself for what happened back here. There may be more at stake. David was given an opportunity to take out his enemy, right? And he was encouraged by his, by his men to eliminate his competition. This story comes out of 1 Samuel 24. Let me read it to you. And, and let me, well, let me set it up a little bit. Um, first of all, um, King Saul, there, there's a whole lot of story here. You're just going to have to get in your Bibles and read it. But let me, let me tell you this. King Saul becomes David's father-in-law. You think you had family problems, okay? He, he, he comes his father-in-law. His father-in-law tries to kill him several times at dinner. It's not a good situation, okay? So that happens to you at Thanksgiving. You've got something to gripe about. But until then, you're okay, all right? So, so he doesn't like him. David has to go on the run. He has to leave. He has to collect a, a, a vagabond bunch of... A, you know, discontents who become his army. But in the meantime, he's in the woods. He's on the, he's on the run. He's hiding in the caves and in the highlands. And Saul is after him. And here's what it says. After Saul was returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel. I think at this point, David had like 600 guys. <laughs> so this is overkill, to say the least. And he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of wild goats. And he came to the sheep pens along the way. I love the reference of sheep that just keeps happening. And a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. It means exactly what you think it means. All right? And David and his men were far back in the cave, and the men said, This is the day. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. First of all, God never said that. If he did, we don't have it written down. But this is what his men believe, okay? And David crept up. He's, he's biting. He creeps up unnoticed and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. I don't know if it, the robe was still on Saul. I don't know if he'd thrown it off in the side. In the, I don't know. Picture it however you want. Afterward... David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe, and he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, <clears throat> or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. He has no idea what happened. And then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, after there's a safe distance away, and says, My lord, the king. And Saul looked to him. And David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen to men? Listen, when men say, David is bent on harming you. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. David has a perfect opportunity to eliminate his enemy, to take his rightful position as the new king of Israel, and he does not take it. This is what David does in the face of an enemy that he recognizes is an opportunity to him, not necessarily a threat. First of all, he shows restraint. 
He absolutely shows restraint. He controls his rage. How many conflicts, how many enemies do we have in our lives where we struggle to show restraint? I'll show you, I'll, I'll tell you this one. I had trouble with my restraint this week. Right? Some people have road rage. I have account rage. If you're messing with my accounts, I'm, I'm frustrated by that, right? So I'm at the DMV. That's enough. Is that enough to get you started? I'm at the DMV, and there's no line today. This is great. I'm there on the 31st of October. That is the day that my tags are due. And so I have my check in hand. I have my little renewal cards, and I'm there. I'm ready to pay in the one vehicle, no problem. We get to Joe's uh, Hummer, and they said, no, that cannot be paid. And I said, why not? And they said, there's a hold on that because you have unpaid tolls from 2017. I said, what are you talking about? Unpaid tolls. I, I pay everything that comes. I've never seen a toll. First of all, why is it taking so long to get to me? And what, what in the world? Well, it turns out, folks, if you use the bridge over the river at Louisville, it's an electronic situation, right? And they take a picture of your little whatever, and they send that bill to the previous address that we lived at three years ago. So my bills, my $20 toll fee, which I'm happy to pay, has been sent to a previous address where it has now escalated to $140 that I didn't know about. I'm not happy. I'm calling Riverlink. I'm talking to the river people. I'm not happy about the fact that the river people can hold me up and not allow me to be legal on the road. I'm having a little bit of rage and I'm telling the story at such a level that I hear my husband on the phone. I'm telling him this on the phone. And he said, Janice, you're being hysterical. I'm like, I am not hysterical. This is ridiculous. I, I, I was a little bit hysterical. We must control our rage, right? I'm telling you, I'm going to Indiana in two weeks. I'm going through Cincinnati. Or I'm rowing a boat. One of the two. I am not taking the river bridge anymore. I'm offended by the whole situation. But whatever. We must show restraint. We must show restraint. I didn't do very well this week. I hope you do better. The second thing David does is he shows patience. He shows patience. He understands that he is going to be king. He knows what God has for him. You may know exactly what God has for you, but are you rushing it? Are you rushing it? He's like, is it time? Is it really time yet for me to do what I'm supposed to do and to be where, is this really how it's going to go down, God? You've told me I'm going to be king. And here's the deal. There are no free elections in Israel. We have to wait till that man dies before David is going to take his role. Is Saul going to die on his own? Is David supposed to be the one to kill him? All these questions have to be hanging in the air. But David is waiting because he has patience. And thirdly, he shows honor. He shows honor to Saul as a man who had been anointed by God. I don't know who your enemy is. I don't know who your conflict is with. But I am telling you, we are called to show honor to people. We did an entire Bible study on that last fall on the idea of showing honor to people who don't deserve it. People who have not earned it. It's one thing to show honor to a parent who has been honorable. It is another thing to be honorable to someone who has been dishonorable in the way that they have treated you. It is easy to, be, to, to extend honor to an elected official that you agree with. It's much more difficult to show honor to an elected official that you despise. And God is telling us to show honor to our enemies. 
God neither eliminates the enemy, nor does he resolve David's conflict. He does neither of those. For a solid decade, David will be on the run. Are we too quick to resolve a conflict that is really there to add to our maturity? Are we too quick to run into conflict because we frankly love confrontation and we're just going to bring it? You know what I mean? Just, I'm, I'm ready. Are you too quick to flee from conflict because you prefer to hide? And you don't like it. And you just let it fester. I'm telling you, David did neither of those things. David was not running into conflict and he was not hiding from it. He was waiting his turn. He was waiting his turn. Maybe God is inviting us to trust him and offering to sustain us with this overflowing cup in the face and in the presence of our enemies. You know, you can sit at that table and feel the breath on your neck of that enemy behind you. And yet we can sit peacefully and chew our food without rushing because God has forced us to sit down at a designated spot for a full meal. So what is he teaching us at the table? I think he's teaching us that he can and he will protect us. Because here is what I noticed that David, here's what David notices that God gave him in the midst of his conflicts, whichever one he means. When he says that God prepares a table, what he is saying is God is preparing food. God is preparing food for him. That's what you get at a table. God did not set a table for him so he could play poker. God did not set the table for him so he could play Monopoly. God did not set the table for him so that he could do a puzzle. God did not set the table for him so that he could do more of his office work at the house because, you know, you just brought it all home with you. No, the table is not set with a beautiful tablescape that is never, ever used in your fancy dining room. The, the table is set with food. Real food, not fake food. This is not a diet. This is not a Daniel diet, if you know what I'm talking about. If you don't read Daniel and you figure that out. No, this is a real, this is a real meal. We've got wine. We're going to have bread. We're going to have oil. We're going to have a fruit. We're going to have we're gonna have carbs. Okay, there's going to be carbs at this meal. That's what a feast is because it's a celebration. It's a celebration, and that's the kind of meal that God has set before us, and we need to eat it. And if you don't believe me in terms of what, the, what David is eating in those days, there's plenty of verses that give us the idea of what he's eating. And this is not a diet. This is, this is real food. Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Because in the midst of our conflict, God expects us to eat. He expects us to eat. Some of us are starving ourselves to death. We're trying to lose 10 pounds. We're trying to regain some girlish figure. We're trying to give ourselves 10 more years of health. And I'm not telling you you need to gorge yourself out on Twinkies and preservatives and all those things that aren't good for you. But we do need to learn to celebrate well and learn when God is setting a table for us. Spiritually speaking, some of us are starving. This may be the only meal you get all week. And you're thinking that's enough, and it's not enough. And maybe the rest of us are like on the run. We're like grabbing a verse on our like you version in the morning, and maybe we're, you know, hollering up a Hail Mary prayer over a burger at the drive-thru, and maybe we're listening to a podcast on our way home, and, you know, or a worship song or something like that. But we're really, we're really just starving. 
And God is setting a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And you know why he's doing it? It's because you're going to need it. You're going to need it. You're going to need the strength that comes from spending time with him to face your conflict. Right? And the enemy knows when you're starving. Why? Jesus goes out into the wilderness to, um, to fast and for 40 days, and that's when he is tempted. And what is the first thing he's tempted with? Food. And he, and he says, well, if you're so smart, why don't you turn those uh, stones into, into bread? And this is what Jesus responds to him and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He knows what will really give him strength. And it isn't physical bread, it is spiritual bread. And the angels come and they minister to him. So God prepares this table. Here's the other thing I love about this picture. It just went so many places. God didn't provide a kitchen. He didn't give him like a great, fabulous kitchen with a lot of utensils and supplies and said, there, go fix yourself something. No, you get to sit down. Some of us are uncomfortable at dinner parties these days. You know what I mean? We don't, we don't do that very much anymore. We're eating in, in front of the television or we're grabbing food here or there. And I'm telling you, there's something very special about sitting down and having someone serve you and fill your cup up every time it gets below half until it's overflowing. That's the kind of God that we have. There's a posture of being at this table where you sit, you relax in order to eat. It's not a bagged lunch. It's not a drive-through. It's not a walking taco. You got to sit down. And that requires time and utensils and goblets. It's a good practice to take time feeding on God's Word every day, to worship, to listen to teaching, to pray. Jeremiah 3.15 says, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with, understand, with knowledge and understanding. It's good to listen to the shepherds that we have access to. That's good. John 6.51, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, and I will give you, which I will give for the life of the world. But it's especially important to feed on God's word in the midst of our conflicts. In the midst of our conflicts, that's when we need it most. And yet, that's when we often avoid God. That's when we're so busy complaining about the river people that we are not willing to sit down and, and feed on God's Word. I had, another con I had another account issue this week, and I was on the phone for an hour and 38 minutes. Not that I was keeping track, but I was on the phone for an hour and 38 minutes over a mistake over my account, and I found my blood pressure rising, and I realized that I had these discipleship women that were coming over at 25-ish women Come, they're not 25-ish, there's about 25 of them, but they were coming to my house in, in just another hour, and I was, I was supposed to talk to Je about Jesus to them, and I'm not in the mood. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, come on, this is the time. I'm in a conflict. It's time to feed on God's Word. This is not. This is not the way to live in this conflict. So here's what I noticed, and I've got two more examples from David's life to demonstrate why this is so important. Jonathan and Saul were fighting the Philistines, and this is two different ways to deal with a conflict. Jonathan and Saul, Jonathan is the son of Saul, and um, um, Saul was not that great of a commander. Saul's kind of sitting around under a tree, and Jonathan's tired of it, and he says, listen, let's go do something. And so he goes across, and he engages the Philistines. Well, this creates a huge uproar. Saul doesn't even know that Jonathan has done this, and so Saul takes all of his men into battle, but this is the instruction he gives them. 
Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The long and short of the story is, uh, Jonathan doesn't know about that. He finds some honey. He eats the honey. Scripture says it brightens his eyes. He has energy to take on the battle. And yet the troops are depleted and they're struggling and it's a big mess. Right? And Jonathan said, my father has made a poor choice by saying not to eat, telling them not to eat in the midst of battle. David, on the other hand, is a different kind of commander. And when he leaves Saul and gathers together his discontents that are with him, he's putting this together and he doesn't have anything yet. He doesn't have provisions. He doesn't really have a plan. He's just on the run. And so what he does is he goes straight to the priest. There's not a standing tabernacle yet, but he goes straight to the priest because he knows that the priests receive bread, right? It's part of the sacrificial system. And, and they have bread that they put out in front of the Ark of Covenant. It's called the showbread. And so he goes to them. And, uh, and he says to the priest, as for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. And the priest answers, David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread since there was no bread except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. David understands the importance of feeding his men in the midst of conflict, in the midst of conflict, in battle, we need to be feeding on God's word and his presence. Because God wants to keep our cup full and he wants to sustain us. The bottom line is we serve a shepherd who goes to great lengths to locate and set up grazing for us. I need to recognize the lengths and the sacrifice of God who moved by his compassion for us, for these helpless sheep-like creatures, sent his son to die on the cross for us. That's the provision. Gave up his position in heaven to come down and live among us and deliver us from the dilemma of sin. And we celebrate that with the feast of communion, the cup, the bread. Some of you enjoy celebrating communion in the corners of our room where you see candles during our, our worship. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have a pulse service where we do that in a very deliberate way. We celebrate communion where we remember and we celebrate what God has done for us and we do that deliberately as a body of believers. And I encourage you to be here for that. But as we go into this time of ministry, the, the, they're going to sing one more song. And um, if you want during that time to go and celebrate God's gift, I invite you to consider doing that. Let's come to our feet. But we also have these people up here from the prayer team, and they are here to pray for you. And here's what I'm wondering. Are you feeding yourself spiritually in the midst of a conflict? Or are you fixating on the conflict? Is your cup empty or is it overflowing? Maybe you would like to come up and to have somebody pray over that in your life, that you would be filled up this morning. Maybe you've got a conflict in mind that you have just felt like you need to bulldoze through it and God is telling you to show restraint, to show patience, and to show honor toward that person. Maybe you hear him telling you to just sit down and eat a decent meal and to quit rushing everything. 
quit rushing God in just this attempt to eliminate all the conflict from your life. If you want prayer for any of these things, make your way forward as we sing this last song.